Take your Bible with me, if you will, and find your place at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. These four messages of this month have been messages that have been given by God to encourage you during difficult times. We've asked you to dream great dreams again. We've challenged you to show compassion and last week to not quit, no matter what you're facing, don't quit. And today we're talking about something that a lot of us feel in the course of our lives. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt that you were all alone and that somehow God maybe has left you and you're wondering where has he gone and what's going on in my life and and why is it this way? And you're struggling You feel like you're in a desert, like you're in a wilderness, and everything around you is barren. Well, I want you to know today that God has something to say to you, and God wants to encourage your heart. God wants to lift your spirits on on this day. I mean, when you think about it, there's times in our lives when we feel like God is a million miles away. That's the reality that sometimes we have to deal with. It sometimes feels like our prayers get no higher than the ceiling above us, as if he's not listening to us, he's not paying any attention to the things that we're calling out to him about. We open our Bibles and we start reading, and it's like we're just reading words on a page. It's as if it's a closed book, and we can't quite understand what it's saying to us. Our worship, even when we gather, we know we should gather, and we do gather Even when we worship, it's more like a ritual we're going through. It's not like the moving experience that we once used to know. Sometimes we find ourselves in in desperate circumstances. Things from which we want to be delivered, we cry out for deliverance, and yet we don't find that deliverance coming. Other times, it's sorrow or it's grief. 
It's the death of a child or the death of a spouse or the death of a family member, dear and beloved, or a death of a friend, and you're hurting so deeply and you're crying out to God and you just, you just want him to put his arms around you and hold you and let you know it's okay, and yet you don't feel that sense of his nearness, or it may be an illness, something that you've been diagnosed with, and the doctor has told you is the reality of the tests that have come back, and he's going to give you a regimen, he's going to give you a path to follow, but he's not telling you that for certain you're going to get better, and you begin to wonder to yourself, where is God in these kinds of experiences? When I desperately needed him most, it sometimes feels like he's the farthest away from me at those times in my life. Uh, those are experiences that I'll refer to today as wilderness experiences, like you're out in the middle of a desert somewhere and everything is barren around you and you're desperately wanting for God to come to you and for God to help you and you're calling out to him but he's not answering as you are expecting him to answer and you are wondering, is he even hearing me? Does he even know where I am? Does he even see me? Does he recognize the, the desperation of my circumstances? If you find yourself today in that situation, I have something that I want to say to you that I pray will be an encouragement to your heart, that will lift your spirits today, because God definitely sees you, and God is definitely at work, even if you don't recognize that God is at work. And I would say to those of you who aren't in one of those experiences, and maybe are young enough that you've not had one of those experiences, prepare yourself understand the truths that I'm about to share with you because ultimately in the course of our lives, we all go through these things. We all go through these barren moments when we feel abandoned, when we find ourselves in a wilderness and it's a barrenness all around us and we wonder where God is. I would love for Christianity to be able to be lived all the time on a mountaintop, wouldn't you? I would love for it to always be a thrilling exhilarating uh, kind of an experience. I would like it to always be like you feel when you get a hole in one and you're jumping up and down and you're thrilled with excitement or you get something even more rare than a hole in one, which is a double eagle or what they call today an albatross, an even more rare experience. Or for you football fans to be able to have that final cut, that final catch in the end zone. The wide receiver goes up and he catches it with one hand and he pins it to his helmet and he falls to the ground in the end zone and you win the game. I'd love for every moment of life to be like that. But of course, if every moment of life were like that, then you would soon get weary of it and get tired of it as well. You know, life has its ups and its downs. It has its high moments emotionally and its low moments emotionally. It has its uh, vibrant times when you see yourself and everything around you seems to be blooming. And it has the moments when you feel like you're in a desert and you're abandoned and everything is is sandy looking and everything is that terrible tan color and you wonder, where is God? But I want you to know today, if you have 
had one of those experiences or you are having one of those experiences that you're not alone. You realize some of the most well-known characters of Scripture have been through similar kinds of things? Think about Moses with me for a moment. Moses' life is divided into three segments, each of them 40 years in length. That first segment was 40 years of preparation. That last segment is the 40 years that he leads the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and to the land, to the very precipice of the land of Israel. But it's that middle period of his life, that middle 40 years, that he's on the backside of a desert, and what is he doing? He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. He was a man who was raised for leadership. He was a man who had been trained in the best of the schools of Egypt. He was a man who grew up in the palace of the Pharaoh. He had every opportunity at his hand, but he finds himself on the backside of a desert watching sheep. And can you imagine that there must have been plenty of times when Moses was wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? Why am I here? What is this wilderness that I am in? Why am I in this kind of a situation? And he spent 40 years on the backside of that desert. I pray you don't spend 40 years in a wilderness, but Moses did. Or think about Joseph. You're not alone. Joseph was a man that was chosen by God to do something special, going to save the people of Israel alive. And if you remember, he was despised by his brothers. His brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He's betrayed by Potiphar's wife, uh, accused of something that he did not do. He ends up in prison. And Dr. Merrill Unger says that from the time that he went into prison until the time he came out was approximately 14 years In 14 years of his life, though you never once hear Joseph complaining or or grumbling or griping, you find Joseph in the midst of this wilderness experience, and you must be wondering, Lord, you gave me this dream about me coming to a place of leadership. What am I doing in prison? Why am I here in this jail? In 14 years, he found himself in what we might term as a, a wilderness experience. Or think about David. Uh, David, next to Abraham, maybe the best beloved of all the Old Testament characters, uh, the one that God had chosen to be the next king of Israel. And you remember the process, sort of like the Cinderella story, the process of David being found so that he could be anointed to be the next king of Israel. But do you realize from the time that David was anointed to the time that David begins the ascension to the power of Israel, do you realize that there are about 10 years between that, between the anointing and David coming to power in Israel? And do you know what he's doing during those 10 years? Saul is still the king. And Saul is jealous of David, and Saul is afraid of David, and Saul tries to kill David on more than one occasion, and David finds himself wandering in the caves and in the woods, just trying to stay alive. Can't you imagine David was asking the question on occasion, Lord, what is this? Why is it this way? What's going on here? This doesn't seem right. I mean, Lord, I was there, obviously, when you had me anointed to be the next king, and here I am running for my life. That's not what a king does. Or consider Job for a moment. 
Some of you in this room know what it means to lose a child. You read through the story of Job as if Job is just a fictional character. Job is not a fictional character. Job, in a moment of time, got the news that all ten of his children were killed. Can you imagine how devastating that news would have been? Some of you know how devastating that news would have felt. All ten of his children, in addition, all of his wealth, all of his power of that society of that day was suddenly gone from him. And then he finds himself sitting in the ashes, scraping the sores because his very health is taken from him. We read the story of Job, and we know what's going on behind the scenes. We know what's happening in the heavenlies. But I remind you that Job did not have the book of Job. He did not know what was going on behind the scenes. He could not see into the spiritual realm to understand the things that we now see that are written for us to understand. And for at least a year's period of time with his health as it was, he suffered in addition to the sadness that he had to endure at the death of his children. Is it any wonder that his wife on one occasion says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Don't you think she was hurting just as deeply? Maybe not physically as he was suffering physically, but she was hurting just as much emotionally from the loss of 10 children. And he must have wondered, God, what in the world are you doing? How does the Bible refer to Job? He was a righteous man. He was a godly man. He was a man that was well-respected in his day. God, why would you allow something like this to occur to me? Or if you move to the New Testament, think about Paul. We always think about the great exploits of Paul and what Paul was able to accomplish as a missionary of the gospel of Jesus. And it is truly amazing, isn't it? But do you realize that from the time that Paul was saved on the Damascus Road, that there are approximately three years of his life that we know just a very little bit about before he really emerges on the scene to become the great Apostle Paul. And do you know what he's doing? He's out here in a wilderness experience. He's being trained for the ministry, yes, but he's out here in a wilderness experience, and he must be asking himself the question, God, what do you want from my life, and what are you doing in my life, and why am I here? Why do I have to be out here in Arabia? Why is it necessary for me to be in this desert? Or maybe the ultimate example of a wilderness experience is Jesus himself. We don't know a lot about the childhood and the teenage years of Jesus. We have very few glimpses of that. But when Jesus bursts on the scene and you begin to see him again and again in the ministry of Jesus again and again in the Gospels, we know that it begins with what? Forty days of fasting in the desert. Forty days in the wilderness. And what's happening during those 40 days? Jesus is being tempted. You think you've been tempted? By the way, none of us in this room warrants Satan's personal attention. None of us are that important. Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at the same time. He can only be at one place at a time. He has many demons that will follow his instruction. 
but he, he would not, we would not warrant the presence of Satan himself. But do you know who does? Jesus Christ does. And of course, if you know the gospel stories at all, you know that the ministry of Jesus begins with that time of temptation, and Jesus rebuffs the temptation by quoting from the Scripture, by giving the Scripture back. But can you imagine that period of the life of Jesus, those 40 days without food out in this wilderness, out in this desert area? Can you imagine what that must have been like? I was gifted a book recently, and I've been reading it. The title of the book is Anonymous. It's about those anonymous years of Jesus that were really more important than we give credit to them for being that prepared Jesus for his public ministry. But in the book, the lady who writes it says this, the sky ripped open, the Holy Spirit took the form of a dove and rested upon Jesus. We're talking about his baptism. God thundered his unfailing love from the heavens, and then he ushered his beloved son into, and she pauses, the desert. She goes on. Desert is translated from a Greek word that refers to the abandonment of a person, cause, or place. Though it can refer to a tract of arid, barren land or a waterless region, the primary meaning when used to speak of a place is that of solitude or emptiness. In this sense, she writes, desert is actually a descriptor for lonely places and uninhabited regions. Lonely places and uninhabited regions. And that's how sometimes life feels, isn't it? We're in lonely places, uninhabited regions. Where is God? I've been calling out to him. Where is God? I desperately need him. Why doesn't he deliver me from these circumstances? Why doesn't he restore me? Why doesn't he hear me? And we find ourselves feeling as if we're in one of those wilderness experiences, as if God has abandoned us. You know, sometimes it's valuable if we just understand what God is doing. I can't tell you specifically what God is doing in your life. If you're in one of those wilderness experiences, the, the exact details of all that God is working out in your life, but I can tell you in a general way what God is seeking to accomplish if you find yourself in one of these wilderness experiences, and I hope you'll remember these, when God allows these kinds of experiences to come to us, they are for the purpose of proving us, to prove us. That is to test our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says that though our faith is tested by fire, it may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is tested by fire. There are those moments when we're in the fiery sunlight of a wilderness experience. And what is God doing? He's proving us. He is proving our faith. I don't know if you like to watch movies or not. Most of them that I have seen of late that have come out aren't worth watching. But somebody gifted me a subscription to Pure Flix. And one of the categories on Pure Flix, which are family-friendly movies, faith 
based movies. One of the areas of this uh, streaming service called PureFlix are movies that are based on true stories. If you want to get my attention, that gets my attention. I like movies that are based on something that actually happens, somebody's life that's true. I especially like it when you get to the end of the movie and they show the pictures of the real people. They, they show some of the scenes that really took place. This particular movie called Indivisible is one of those kinds of movies. I've watched it twice. I'll probably watch it two or three more times because it's a touching movie. It's about a man, true story, about a man who is an army chaplain. He and his wife have a wonderful marriage. They have three beautiful small children. And he is set apart to be the chaplain in Iraq. 2007, when George W. Bush was president, when the Iraq war was going on in Al-Qaeda, they were trying to stamp out Al-Qaeda. And he takes his very first tour of duty. It's 18 months in length, this first tour of duty. And he finds himself now out in this desert, this wilderness called Iraq, surrounded by these soldiers that he loves with all of his heart and that he's been given the responsibility of ministering the goodness and the grace and the word of God to while they're battling. He sees things that he could never have imagined. If you, many of you have been to war, you can say, I've seen things that I never could have imagined. He saw the death of innocent children. He saw the death of innocent civilians. He saw the death of some of his own soldiers. One of his dearest friends during that 18-month period, his life is taken uh, by one of those explosive devices, and another of his friends loses his leg. But in the process of all of this unfolding, this man is little by little losing his faith. He's beginning to wonder, where is God? Why doesn't God protect these men? He carries a little coin in his pocket that says the armor of God. And he was something that he did with his family to be reminded every day you got to get up and put on your armor, the armor of God, so that God will protect you. And he's beginning to question, where is God? Why doesn't God protect these people? I've prayed for them. I've ministered to them. I've comforted them. I've helped them. His 18 months comes to an end, and he comes home. He finds himself back at his house, and he's struggling. He has PTSD. He sits for long hours just in a chair out in the backyard looking into the woods. He finds himself sometimes uh, triggered by something that he hears. He gets angry with his wife. He gets angry with his children, and everything that he's been pent, uh, that's been, been uh, pent up within him comes pouring out of him, and he stays distant to his wife, keeps her at arm's length until finally he has an outburst towards some of his children, and she says, you have to leave. You go to the base, and you live at the base until you get some help. And when you get some help, then we'll talk about what's next. And he leaves, and he goes to the base. Over the coming weeks and months, he begins seeing a military counselor, somebody that's going to deal with his PTSD but at one crucial moment, what for me, I believe, is the, is the pinnacle of the movie. He's talking to this military, this military counselor, 
And he's trying to explain what he's feeling deep within himself. And he stands up out of his chair and he's angry and he begins to shout, I trusted in God to protect those men and he didn't. He was in the middle of a wilderness experience. Now listen. And the military counselor answers, answers back, no, no, you trusted in God to do what you thought he ought to do. I don't know if you heard that or not. It is profound. You trusted in God to do what you thought he ought to do. Do you understand that that's where the test of faith comes in? If faith simply means getting from God at any given moment exactly what we want from God, getting our will done rather than his will done, then our faith really isn't being tested at all. The test of our faith is when God doesn't do what we think he ought to do and he does something totally different. Do we believe him even in those moments? Do we believe him when we're in the wilderness and we feel abandoned and we say, I will trust God no matter what. God uses these experiences to prove us. He uses these experiences to perfect us. First Peter chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 says that after you've suffered a while, you're made perfect, established, strengthened, and he'll settle you. You're made perfect. It's a word that means to bring to maturity. It's a word that means to grow up. How many times over the course of, of my years, of 65 years of life, have I heard somebody say, you know, my mother passed or my daddy passed or my parents got a divorce and I had to grow up really fast. That's what he's talking about. You go through experiences that not just prove us, but we go through experiences that perfect us, that cause us to grow up, sometimes grow up really fast because we need to grow up, and God wants us to bring us to a place of maturity. You cannot play through the Christian life all the time. The Christian life is not always a hole-in-one or a double eagle, an albatross. It's not always a miraculous catch in the end zone. It's not always a last-second basket where the exhilaration and the thrill causes you to jump up screaming. The Christian life is just as real, if not more so real, when we're in the depth of a valley. And we say, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you no matter what it is you're doing because ultimately through it and out of it, you're making us, you're making me more mature. One of the fascinating things about the movie Indivisible was that at the end, he resigned his duty as a chaplain. A year, they're counseling and they're talking to each other, but then the army chaplain comes and says, you know, the army needs some good men, some good chaplains like you. He says, no. We've been healing. We've been working on our family. We're all back together. His wife hears about this and that he's turned it down. She calls the army chaplain. and She says, is this true? And the end of the movie is so beautiful. She walks into the kitchen 
And she says, I guess we're going to have to begin packing certain things she lists for our move. And he says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, I made a phone call to the chaplain. He told me what he asked you. And she looks at him and she says, you know we were called to this. And they have a conversation together. I don't want to ruin the whole movie for you. I just did, didn't I? They decide together that they're going to go in. He's given the rank of major. He becomes a chaplain again in the United States Army. And they tell you at the end, you know, what we have been through, now we understand and we know how to prepare and we know how to help other people. And at the end, you see the pictures of the real uh, army chaplain and his wife and his family and you hear about his deployments his other deployments that he had and where he was stationed and what was God doing through that experience God was perfecting him bringing he and his wife to a place of maturity helping them to grow up you can't play the rest of your life there are real moments in life that hurt sometimes when the darkness is very very real and you feel abandoned in the area around you. It feels like a desert, like a wilderness. Why does God allow these things to prove us, to perfect us, to prompt us? He allows them to prompt us to seek him. Those are moments when we find ourselves in the depth of these difficulties that drives us to seek God. Where are you, God? And sometimes the most important things that come out of the wilderness experiences of life are that we're prompted to seek God with all of our hearts. Let's be honest about it. Too often we don't seek God unless we're in a wilderness. Too often we take God for granted. We take God for granted as if we just know he's there, he's going to be with us, and we, we don't really need him every single day. So we think until we find ourselves in the depth of despair and then we realize we need God more than we've ever needed him and we start seeking him again and God uses these experiences to prompt us sometimes he uses these experiences to persuade us to persuade us to examine ourselves to make us stop and to look within ourselves to see if there's something inside of us that needs to be dealt with to get our attention to make us and cause us to look within ourselves and say, am I right with God? Are things as they need to be? Are things as they should to be? And sometimes God allows these things to prepare us, to prepare us for greater usefulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God comforts you but then you take the comfort that God gives to you and you give that comfort to others. Why does God allow these kinds of experiences? He does it to prove us and to perfect us and to prompt us and to persuade us and to prepare us. But the real question is, when we find ourselves in one of these experiences, what do we do? Are you in one of those experiences today? Are you wondering, where is God? Why doesn't he come and take me out of this mess why doesn't he solve this problem? Why doesn't he resolve this issue? Why doesn't he make this better? I've been calling out to him. I've been crying out to him. Where is God? Well, can I tell you that there's a right way to respond to those kinds of circumstances in your life? 
First of all, when you have a, when you have a situation like that, a, a circumstance like that, you respond by walking confidently. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. I see, and what I see I don't like, but I'm going to trust God anyway. I'm going to walk confidently that God is near me and that God is with me and that God never leaves me and that God is here with me. Back in the first part of the 20th century, early 1900s, before there were all the roads and the bridges like we have today, there was a godly pastor that was compelled to correct a man's evil deed. Well, in doing so, he attracted that man's malicious hate. And the man vowed that he was going to repay him. One day, the pastor was called to make a visit to a house where you had to go across this raging stream, and you had to go across on these slick boards to get across the stream. And the enemy thought, this is my chance. When he's coming back, I'll meet him in the middle of, that, of, the, of the middle of those boards, and I'll push him off into that raging stream, and everybody will just think that he slipped and he fell. And he waited in his hiding place for that, for that pastor to come back through the dim light toward him. He was surprised, though. When he saw the pastor, there was somebody else with him. And that person that was with him crossed the bridge with him, that, those boards with him, got to the other side. When they passed the near area where this man had been hiding and was hiding, this person with the pastor looked over and he saw that man, and that man was suddenly stricken with a conviction. What am I, what am I about to do? What was I about to do? What in the world was I about to do? The ultimate result of that is this man comes to faith. True story. This man comes to faith. In Jesus Christ. Well, after he becomes a believer in Jesus, he decides that he needs to go to this pastor and just confess his evil intentions. And so he finds the pastor one evening and he says, It would have been your death had the other person not been with you. And the pastor responded, What do you mean? I was alone. And the converted man said, No, there was another man with you. And then, according to F.B. Meyer, the pastor knew that God had sent his angel to protect him. And can I tell you, better than the angel to protect him is that God never leaves us and God never forsakes us and we walk confidently knowing that he is with us no matter what the circumstances around us may be. Amen? I'm reminded of the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel. You remember Nebuchadnezzar makes this statue, this gold statue. He says when the music plays, everybody has to bow down and worship this statue. And if you don't do that, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to do so. The music plays. They refuse to bow down. They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, if you'll just bow down when the music plays, we don't have to throw you into the fire. They said, We'll, we will not bow down, and our God will deliver us. And if he doesn't deliver us, we will not bow down, period. You remember the story? The result is they heat up the, they heat up the fire seven times hotter than it's ever been. They throw the three Hebrew children into the fire. And inside the fire, they look to see who's in there. And what do they see? Not three men. They see how many? They said the fourth is like two the Son of God. Can I just tell you that 
no matter where you are or what you're going through, God has not left you. And you have to walk confidently. Secondly, you have to wait patiently. You notice what Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, the verse I've had you turn to today. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. It says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Will you read that out loud with me? Just everybody out loud with me. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We have to wait on the Lord. You know, I always want to fix things as fast as I can fix them. And God says, if you can do that, that's okay. But sometimes what I want for you to do is to wait until I take care of it. We have to walk confidently. We have to wait patiently. Number three, we have to worship gratefully. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. We have to worship God gratefully, even in those moments. We have to do what Paul and Silas did in that jail cell in Philippi when their hands are in stocks, their feet are locked down, they're in the innermost prison. It's dark and it's damp. And what are they doing? They're singing praises to God. We have to worship gratefully. Someone has written, everyone will pass through dark valleys sooner or later. All will become ill. Some will become permanently ill. For all of us, there will be periods of suffering, bereavement, discouragement, danger, and difficulty. There are those who give up their allegiance to God because they do not believe God is fair. They ask, what have I done to deserve this? Why are children born with severe challenges or born dead? Why is there cancer? Why me? How will we answer these and similar questions, the author says? How will we learn to sing songs at night? He says, by having faith in the sovereignty of God. The world is not being ruled by chance, but by God who is in control. Even the sparrow cannot fall, he says, without his notice. So he cares about us. Nothing can happen that does not concern God. Amen. I don't understand it all, do you? You do? I don't understand it all. I don't understand all the things that God does, but I have to walk confidently knowing that God is there and wait patiently for God to work out the circumstances he's working in my life. And in the midst of it all, I have to worship him gratefully and say, oh God, I don't understand it, but I know you're in control of it. And I trust you through it all. And you lift up your voice and you sing his praises? Do you realize that the apostle John sang songs of joy and praise while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos? Did you know at midnight, David arose to give thanks to God? Psalm 119, 62. Did you know that Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong? 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Our lives will become stronger and our spirituality deeper when we learn to sing at midnight. Number four, we have to work faithfully. That's not the time to give up. That's not the time to quit. That's not the time to walk away. That's the time to be obedient. 
and say, Lord, we're going to keep doing what we know is right to do, even if we don't understand why we're doing it all and it hurts while we're doing it. We're going to keep moving forward and obeying you. You have to work faithfully. There was a pilot that was having trouble landing his plane because of the fog, so they decided to bring him in on radar, by radar. So they get him all lined up by radar. He's headed toward the runway, and suddenly he, re- he remembers there's a tall pole before you get to that runway. He can't see it. He's only following the radar that's been given to him, the, 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 the coordinates that are given to him, and he can't see the pole, and he begins to panic. What if I'm too low? What if I hit the pole? And he radios, he radios the tower about the pole, and in his panic... And the tower comes back bluntly and says, you obey instructions, we will take care of obstructions. Isn't that good? You say, I don't understand what God is doing. I'm going to quit quit leading in my my life group. I'm going to quit coming to my life group. I'm going to quit coming to church services. Or or I'm going to quit this. Or I'm going to quit reading my Bible. And I'm going to quit praying. What do you mean? That's the time to read more and pray more and seek more and worship more. That's the time to keep your hand to the plow and not turn back. You work faithfully. I I challenge you to do this, and I'm almost through, so stay with me. But I challenge you to do this. Google this. Robin's Reef at Staten Island. Robin's Reef at Staten Island. You'll find the name of a man by the name of Johnny Walker. John Walker. John Walker was the light keeper. If you go look at the pictures of this lighthouse, lighthouses aren't as used today as they once were with the satellites and the GPS, all those kind of coordinates. They're not as popular. They're more sightseeing things than they are anything else. But this particular one's called a, it's called a, a fire plug lighthouse. It's just a mound coming up out of the water, not very big, not an island size, just a mound coming up out of the water. And then like a, like a, a, a pole coming up out of that mound is this lighthouse, just not real tall, but tall enough to be seen. They were run by kerosene. John Walker was given that task, and for four years he faithfully discharged his duty, making sure that that light It would blink so many times an hour so that ships could see where the danger was. They could be be cautioned from a distance about where the danger was. And for four years, he did that task until he fell ill. His wife sent for the medic, and the medic came out and said, we're going to have to take him to the hospital. He was taken off that little mound of dirt where he and his wife lived, and he ultimately died at the hospital. But as he was being carried away, he called out to his wife as a parting direction. And these are the words he said to her. Mind the light. Mind the light. In other words, he was faithful to his trust to the very end. I'm glad to be able to tell you that she took that responsibility for the next 33 years with her children living on that little mound of dirt in, in that Well, that water in that lighthouse, she raised her family, and she kept that light burning for 33 years. But can you you hear the message of the story? God blesses faithfulness. What, What do we do when we find ourselves in a wilderness experience? We work 
faithfully. That's not the time to turn around. That's not the time to quit. That's not the time to let go of the plow. That's the time to put your head down. As, as we say sometimes in Georgia, you probably say it here, you hunker down. And you say, I'm going forward. I will not quit. I'm going to trust God no matter what my circumstances. I'm going to believe him, period, period. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to know that he's working to make me more mature, to help me to grow up in my spiritual life so that I can help others. And I'm going to worship him even in the midst of my pain and my difficulty and give him glory and honor because nothing is outside of his control. And I'll keep my hand to the plow until he calls me to his presence. I want to close with three simple thoughts because my challenge to you today is very simple. If you're in a wilderness experience, turn to God. Keep trusting him. Keep worshiping him. Know that he's there. He sees you and what he's doing he has a purpose for and this is not the time to give up. This is the time to wait on God because Isaiah 40, 31 says, if we wait on the Lord, we'll renew our strength. We'll mount up with wings like eagles. We'll run and not be weary. We'll walk and not faint. And it may not just be a few days. It may not be a few weeks. It may be a few months. It may be even a few years. But I'm going to keep looking to God and going with God and following God till the day I see God face-to-face. If you're making notes, three thoughts in conclusion. Number one, acknowledge God's presence whether you feel it or not. Acknowledge God's presence whether you feel it or not. Well, I just don't feel like God's near to me. I don't feel like he's with me. But you know what the scripture says. He never leaves us and he never forsakes us. Do you know, I think some people riding by me on occasion have thought that I had lost my mind uh, other than my family who knows I've lost my mind. Some people thought I had lost my mind because I was talking to somebody in the car who, when there wasn't anybody in the car. Have you ever done that? And you're just saying, Lord, do you hear me? Do you see what I'm going through? Do you see the circumstances? Do you see what's happening? Do, do you see this person's life? Do you see the burden that I'm bearing? Lord, do you see it? And I'm talking to the Lord out loud. It's not as big a deal as it used to be because people now have these Bluetooth phones and you know, you're talking to the phone anyway. But when your windows would fog up before those days and people were looking at you, who's he talking to? Maybe we need to take him to a hospital and get him some help. Acknowledge God's presence, whether you feel it or not. Can I just tell you, just stop and say, Lord, I know you're here. I know you're with me. I know you'll never leave me and you'll never forsake me. And God, I know that when it's time for you to deliver me, you'll deliver me. But until it's time for you to deliver me, I know, Lord, you'll sustain me. And you'll give me grace and mercy to help me in the midst of my circumstances, in the midst of my wilderness. Lord, I know you are here. Lord, I'm talking to you. Lord, I know you are here. Number two, trust God's will whether you understand it or not. Acknowledge God's presence whether you feel it or not. Trust God's will whether you understand it or not. Lord, I don't like the direction we're headed. I don't like what could be the outcome of this direction we're going. Lord, I don't like this. But do you remember that movie, Indivisible? This is not about God doing what you think God should do. 
This is about God doing what he knows is right to do and what is best to do. We have to trust God's will whether you understand it or not. And number three, and finally, be obedient to God whether it's easy or not. Be obedient to God whether it's easy or not. 